0: Welcome to C-Diff Spores and More with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C-Diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us today. And we would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website, www.cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. Today, joining us are two leading topic expert physicians who specialize in gastroenterology, Drs. Paul Feuerstadt and mean Dr. Mina Bullis. And the doctors Dr. Feuerstadt and Boulis are joining us to discuss eosinophilic, esophageolitis, and chronic idiopathic constipation. Welcome so much. Welcome to the program, doctors.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Oh. You're most welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here today on C. Disporzamore. And, and Dr. Feuerstadt, would you take a moment and just introduce yourself to the audience?
2: Thank you. Thank you again for including us. And, uh, and I think this is going to be a wonderful program. My name is uh, Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, and I'm a clinical gastroenterologist from the greater New Haven area here in Connecticut. I'm part of a hybrid practice, spending a portion of my time teaching residents, medical students, and fellows at the Yale University School of Medicine, but also part of my time, as I consider, on the front lines in private practice, seeing a diverse group of patients with gastrointestinal and liver diseases.
1: Wonderful, thank you so much, Dr. Forrester, and Dr. Bulis. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience?
2: Yes.
3: Again, to echo um, Dr. Forrestad's sentiments, thank you so much for having us. Um, very much looking forward to our discussion this afternoon. Afternoon. My name is uh, Mina Bulis. Um, you know, as you had mentioned, Nancy, I, I focused um, uh, my my work in gastroenterology and general surgery from my past clinical experience. Uh, but currently, I serve as the medical director at Takeda Pharmaceuticals U.S medical affairs department, um, focusing on motility and esophageal disorders.
1: Well, thank you so much for both of you and all your specialty and what you do for others. And we're so grateful for your time and for being here. And I'm going to start off by uh, asking Dr. Feuerstadt, you know, it seems that the two diseases, um, these diseases affect the esophageal and esophagus and colon. And can you tell us a bit more about the esophagus.
2: Sure. Uh, the esophagus is a classic organ uh, that that many people think about, but really, um, it's important to kind of dig a little bit deeper, and that's what's really nice about a radio program like this. We can we can think our way through things and hopefully explain things in an understandable way. Um, the esophagus is, is really a hollow tube. It's a pipe of sorts that's located in our chest, behind the breastbone, and behind our breathing tube. It actually passes from our throat, between our lungs, and into our abdomen. The diaphragm, that's a thin muscle that serves as a line between the chest and the abdomen. And that thin muscle serves to help us breathe, but it also has several holes to allow things to pass from the chest into the abdominal cavity. One of those is wide enough to allow the esophagus to pass through. It's important to think that the esophagus is about 18 to 26 centimeters in length. Now, in terms of functions of the esophagus, the esophagus functions to push food from our throat into our stomach. And it does this like most pipes. But like many things in the body, it's special. And it does something unique to help the food pass into the stomach. And that special, unique element is something called peristalsis. This peristalsis is the so-called motility of the esophagus that most commonly allows food and liquid to be pushed into the stomach. The motility of the esophagus is somewhat complicated, but essentially the upper third of the esophagus has one type of muscle called striated muscle, and the lower two-thirds of the esophagus has another type of muscle, so-called smooth muscle. When a person swallows food and it enters the esophagus, it brilliantly will squeeze behind the food in a coordinated rhythmic manner to gently push the food into the stomach where further processes happen. So think of this like the ocean and a wave in the ocean moving across. It's the same thing in the esophagus where the behind the food and liquid, the esophagus squeezes and pushes in a rhythmic manner. So like anything though, things can sometimes go wrong. And what can go wrong? Based upon the description that we've already had, you can see a lot has to happen for food to simply go through this simple hollow tube. I like to think about what can go wrong in a couple of different ways. Firstly, there can be a problem with the complex set of coordinated muscular contractions. The muscles can weaken so that when, so that when they do not push the food forward, ultimately gravity will take over if we're sitting upright. This usually doesn't lead to significant problems. But the muscles of the esophagus can also contract in a very strong and rigid manner. And this usually results in pain and food getting temporarily stuck in our chest. But this usually lets up with time and the food can then pass with gravity again. In some diseases, like something called scleroderma, cells are deposited in the esophagus, making it stiff and unable to contract. In another interesting disease, so-called achalasia, The nerves that stimulate contraction are not functional, so there is no coordinated contraction. And In fact, the juncture, the connection between the esophagus and the stomach is squeezed shut. So this also has its own set of problems associated with it. The last group of disorders that affect motility are a result of a lack of appropriate stimulation from the nerves of the body. And these include things like myasthenia gravis, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, and Parkinson's disease. So we see, just from a motility standpoint, a lot can go wrong. Now the second category of problems with the esophagus involves the tube being mechanically blocked. So if we envision a pipe, this means that the tube is either being compressed or pushed in by something outside. It's either swollen and the swelling narrows the tube or there's something within the tube that causes narrowing and blocks passage of food and liquid. Things from outside can be a result of a blood vessel or a growth in the lung pushing inward Within the tube, one can form a growth such as a cancer. Also, things that are in cancer can form a so-called stricture or narrowing, and there are several terms for this, such as a ring or a web. If there is inflammation in the esophagus, though, this causes swelling and the width of the tube narrows. This can be from common things like gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD, where acid from the stomach gets into the esophagus and that causes swelling. Remember, the stomach is built to handle the acid that is present there, but the esophagus is not equipped or protected. Given this, when the acid gains access, it causes inflammation, and that inflammation, if present over a long time, can cause scarring, but over the short term, just causes simple swelling. Either way, the tube is narrowed. Now, the disease that we're going to be focusing on today is a combination of both inflammation and mechanical blockage and that causes problems with motility. And from a cell standpoint, the term that we use is something called an eosinophil or eosinophilic esophagitis. Now, eosinophil is a mouthful, but essentially these inflammatory cells are found most commonly when there is an allergic reaction or a unique type of infection to something. That usually results from things like fungal infections, which are fairly rare, medications, or from allergens that stimulate inflammation. In the esophagus, these cells are seen in high numbers with the disease eosinophilic esophagitis that we will discuss in more detail in, in, in the future discussions, although we are not sure what the true stimulus for these cells to group together in the esophagus are.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. and um, Doctor, how does a clinician, clinician assess the esophagus?
2: Nancy, assessing the esophagus can come in multiple different forms. But with our understanding that there can either be a problem with squeezing or a mechanical blockage, we can now try to understand how we could assess the esophagus. And one way is to look non-invasively. An upper GI series is a test where a patient drinks contrast and a chest x-ray is shot slightly after drinking. That takes an image. And this image will show an outline of the esophagus lining and whether there are any lesions within the esophagus something pushing into the esophagus, or another mechanical source of the symptoms. A CT scan is less useful, but can assess whether the esophagus is thickened. A mainstay, and probably the first test in most clinical circumstances when patients are having trouble swallowing, is something called an endoscopy. That's actually a test where a flexible camera is passed into the stomach under direct visualization. I'm, of course, not in the business of torture. So my patients who have an endoscopy are under anesthesia when we do this test. This is the best test for assessment of mechanical causes of trouble swallowing, and we'll also assess the stomach and the first portion of the small bowel. In addition, samples can be made of the esophagus, and those can look under the microscope for various types of inflammation. In certain circumstances, the endoscopy does not show any mechanical cause of difficulty swallowing, and the biopsies don't show any inflammation. And it is at that time that we can obtain a study called a manometry evaluation. A manometry evaluation is a test where a very thin catheter is threaded into the esophagus and the patient is asked to swallow several times. The thin catheter is actually able to measure the pressures and the coordination of contractions at various distances throughout the esophagus and give us, those who interpret these tests, a pressure tracing with time that shows the force and coordination of those contractions. In addition, during the manometry test, one can place a pH probe that can measure the frequency and severity of acid exposure in the esophagus. So that test not only can look at the pressures and the coordination, but also whether or not acid from the stomach is inappropriately getting up into the esophagus. So we can see that we have quite a bit of tools to assess the esophagus.
1: That's wonderful. And thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt, for covering all the information and describing the diseases that can affect the esophagus. At this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break, and when we return, we're going to continue discussing eosinophilic esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation with our guests, Dr. Paul Feuerstadt and Dr. Mina Bullis. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. (music)
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks. Because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Join us on Saturday, November 14th at 8 a.m. Eastern Time for the 8th Annual International C. Virtual Conference and Health Expo. For details and to register, please visit cdiff2020.com. Again, that's cdiff2020.com. Or contact the C. Foundation at 727-205-3922. We look forward to meeting you online on November 14th and meeting you in person in November 2021 in Boston, Massachusetts, at the Hilton Boston Logan Airport Hotel. Do you know the symptoms of COVID-19? They may appear 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus. Symptoms may include fever, chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, vomiting or diarrhea. This can be in any combination. Any difficulty in breathing or shortness of breath, please visit your local hospital immediately. For additional up-to-date COVID-19 information, please visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala.
1: Welcome back to the program and thanks so much for joining us today. Today we have doctors Paul Forrestat and Mina Bullis uh, who are here to discuss isonophilic esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation. We welcome the doctors back to the program. Thank you so much for joining us, doctors. Thank you. You are so welcome. And, you know, um, thank you so much, Dr. Forrest, for explaining the esophagus uh, right before the commercial. And, Dr. Bullis, um, can you tell us more about the colon?
3: Yes, most certainly. So the colon is is one of the most fascinating parts of our our digestive uh, tract. Um, I I will briefly just cover a a couple of of, uh, items related to the colon. One, starting off with the location. The colon, um, for our listeners, is located in our abdominal cavity. And back to Dr. Forstead's point a few minutes ago about the digestive tract, starting with food in the oral cavity, our food moves from our mouth down our esophagus into our stomach. After which it continues into our small intestines, or our small bowels, if you will, um, which continues eventually into our colon. Now, the colon is composed of several segments. Um, the the first segment that we'll speak about is the right colon, which is usually on the right, which is on the right side of the the abdomen. It's also referred to as the ascending colon. Now, the next the next segment is the transverse colon, which runs across our our abdomen. And then the transverse segment continues into the left colon or the descending colon, which runs down the left side of our abdomen connecting to our sigmoid colon, which eventually connects to our rectum. Now, there are several functions um, that, uh, you know, the colon is responsible for to ensure that we live healthy lives. The colon, as I mentioned earlier, is um, also referred to as the large intestine or large bowel. It's part of the digestive system in the human body and plays several important roles in how our body manages the food we eat. After, you know, I just mentioned, after food travels from our mouth down to our esophagus, to our stomach and finding its way past the small intestines and ending up in our colon. Um, By this time, the digested food is more in a liquid nature when it reaches the colon. A very important function of the colon is water absorption. So water absorption occurs mainly in the colon, and the colon moves the remaining waste material from our food particles that we've digested into the rectum where it's Typically stored for um, you know until we're ready to have a bowel movement. Now I know Dr. Forrest had also covered you know what issues can occur. Similarly, you know with the esophagus, there are issues that uh, and diseases that can rise that affect the colon. There are a number of diseases essentially that affect the colon, starting with um, one of our topics today, and that's constipation. Specifically, today we'll be talking about chronic idiopathic constipation, and I'll get into that definition in just a few moments. But those—that—that's one of the um, common causes of digestive issues with uh, within our colon. There are other motility syndromes, such as irritable bowel syndrome. Um, some. Folks will complain with, uh, go to their physician and complain to uh, their physician about irritable bowel syndrome that is associated with diarrhea or constipation, and sometimes a mix of both there are also diverticular diseases. And diverticular diseases a, a brief way to describe them, is really a weakness in the colon wall, and that weakness creates a, a sort of outpouching of the colon wall. In certain circumstances, certain infections may occur in these outpouches, um, and, and that is also a, a type of disease that, unfortunately, um, patients may suffer from. One of the most uh, continuous um, and, and and important topics in the medical community is, is screening our colon for colon polyps and potentially colon cancer. Those are other diseases that can affect the colon. Now, there are a number of uh, other inflammatory diseases that uh, affect the colon. Um, so, inflammation of the colon is referred to as colitis. And most commonly for our listeners, uh, the most common uh, ones that may be uh, relevant and, and heard um, through you know, the medical community is ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So those are some things that can kind of go wrong with the colon and certain diseases um, that we may see um,
1: patients complaining about. Thank you so much, Dr. Bullis, for explaining the anatomy and the functions of the colon. And at this time, can you explain to our global listeners how a clinician clinician assesses the colon?
3: Sure. A- another great question. And, and this really stems um, in two parts. First of all, it's very important that if you are having any digestive um, issues or dysfunctions that are out of the ordinary for you, that you contact your healthcare provider. Your physician or your healthcare provider is the best source of information for you to discuss any medical conditions that you think you may have, or if you already currently have and you're feeling out of the ordinary. Very important to, to, to discuss this with them. Um, you know, most physicians will start out or most health most healthcare providers will start out by taking a good history and possibly performing an exam. There are several technologies that are available to clinicians to assess the colon, and I'll discuss a few of them. The first one is a barium enema. This is really a, an x-ray exam used to detect changes in our colon or in our large bowels. It has been described as the X-ray of the colon. Um, The barium component is a metal liquid that coats the colon to help healthcare practitioners or providers outline the colon and visualize it to see if there are any abnormalities that they can pick up. Second is uh, the CT scan. Now, there are CT scans um, to assess the colon. Um, We we usually conduct a CT scan of of the abdomen and pelvis. Uh, The CT scan helps provide additional details that healthcare providers wouldn't typically be able to see on a plain x-ray. So it gives us a a more detailed visualization of uh, the abdomen, specifically in this case of the colon. Now, I know Dr. Forstad had also touched on manometry for the esophagus, but there's also an anal rectal manometry to uh, assess the colon as well. And this essentially helps healthcare practitioners measure the, the pressures and coordination of our sphincter muscles, in this case, our anal sphincter muscles, and it will also help us measure the sensation in the rectum. Another uh, technology available to us is the colonoscopy. Um, This is, you know, considered to be a a very useful tool by healthcare practitioners because it allows us to detect any changes in the colon um, and the rectum as well. A colonoscopy in brief description is just a long Tube inserted into the rectum, allowing for direct visualization of the inside of the colon so that as we see the colon, we're able to view the normal colon structure and we're also able to identify anything abnormal or that shouldn't be there. So we're able to assess it. Um, Through a colonoscopy, we're also able to take uh, samples if needed. So that's, um, uh, you know, one of the commonly used uh, tools. For assessment of the colon. And last, but certainly certainly not least, is the SITS marker study. This you know, is a test that uses very small markers that are swallowed in a capsule. And these capsules will show up on an x-ray, which will allow doctors to see how fast food is able to move through our intestines. So, those are some of the... Uh, that clinicians have at um, their, their disposal to assess the
1: colon. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bullis, for providing all that information. We really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to uh, jump back over to Dr. Feuerstadt. And Dr. Foyerstadt, can you um, briefly provide our audience an overview of isonophilic esophagitis
2: Yes, Nancy, eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE is an inflammatory condition that is mediated by inflammation from our immune system in the form of, quote, eosinophils that we mentioned before that is chronic and localized within the esophagus. This impacts the esophagus ability to both mechanically push food forward, but also impacts the motility of the organ.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt, for sharing that with us and Dr. Bullis, um the, both the both diseases they sound fascinating, but what is the greatest risk for eosinophilic esophagitis?
3: Well, th- that's a very good question, Nancy. And and let me start out by just giving us a, a brief background on the epidemiology, the incidence and prevalence of eosinophilic esophagitis. Now, The worldwide incidence and prevalence of, EO, of EOE, also uh, a, a, another way we refer to eosinophilic esophagitis, has steadily increased over time. The estimated overall prevalence uh, of EOE is between a half to one case per every 1,000 individuals. There, in the med- medical literature, there's a number of uh, studies that have examined the prevalence. In the United States, the prevalence is approximately one for every 2,000 uh, people that we in- encounter um, that have EOE, and this number continues to rise. So, you know, one of the, some of the risks I'll get into here shortly, but that just gives us a brief background on um, the, the incidence and prevalence of eosinophilic esophagitis.
1: Okay, and Dr. Poulos has um, EoE, eosinophilic esophagitis, seen been seen more frequently in recent times.
3: Yes, so in continuation, essentially, the the incidence of EoE or eosinophilic esophagitis seems to be increasing. There have been a number of studies that I had mentioned that looked at this increase in over the last two decades, and there is emerging evidence that suggests. Environmental factors such as microbes, um, early life events that affect our microbiome, and other factors may be contributing to the rise in the prevalence of uh, eosinophilic esophagitis. Importantly, this may also be due to the increased recognition and awareness of eosinophilic esophagitis. Eosinophilic esophagitis is one of the uh, digestive diseases that has been under-recognized and um, underdiagnosed in recent years. Um, over the last decade, decade and a half, the awareness has continued to increase. So clinician suspicion has also been increasing through various means of increased education and awareness around this disease. So we're able to identify uh, this disease in patients that present with uh, certain characteristic symptoms to their physicians.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Boulis. And at this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing isonophilic esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation with our guests, Dr. Paul Feuerstadt and Dr. Mina Boulis. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff Spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? The c diff Foundation offers global community support sessions. c diff can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C-Difficil prevention, treatments, and environmental safety. Get answers to your questions. You're not alone. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. To register for a session, call the c diff Foundation at 919-201-1512
1: Welcome back to the program and thanks so much for joining us today with Doctors Paul Feuerstadt and Doctor Mina Bullis here just to discuss isonophilic esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation. Welcome back to the program, doctors.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you, Nancy.
1: Thank you so much. And before a break, we were discussing, you know, the um uh, clinicians' assessment of colon and EOE. And Dr. Bullis, would you mind discussing the common symptoms found with EOE?
3: Absolutely, Nancy. So um symptoms and the clinical manifestations that we see are importantly um, you know, variable with age. This is something very important that we should recognize up front. What that means is children, adults, and the elderly may present with different and sometimes similar symptoms. For example, the most common symptom experienced in the adults is difficulty swallowing, also referred to as dysphagia. This is a hallmark symptom in many patients. Many adults will also complain of food impaction. They feel like the food is getting stuck um, down their throat. They will also complain of chest pain gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD, upper abdominal pain um, may also be as part of the symptoms that they complain of. Whereas in children or adolescents, they may present with feeding dysfunctions. They may present with vomiting. They may also present with abdominal pain and some of the overlapping symptoms that we saw in adults, um, such as difficulty swallowing and food impaction. It's also very important to recognize that symptoms can represent a significant physical and emotional burden, as many individuals with EOE may avoid social settings that are focused around food. Where we are in this world, you know, we we center a lot of our activities with our family and our friends around the table, around um, breakfast, lunch, dinner, meeting up for these social events may present as a burden for patients with EOE because they don't want to have their symptoms... Um, rise up in the middle of a social gathering so they end up maybe taking a a rain check on some of these uh, social aspects and it it does um, bring an emotional burden.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that Dr. Bullis and it it is not surprising at all for what happens with the um, diagnosis of EOE and Dr. Furostad what treatments are available at this time for EOE? Nancy,
2: um, you know, most important to say in the beginning, a patient's best source of information on treatment of any disease is their personal doctor who knows their medical history and can provide information appropriate to them. Um, Overall, though, before discussing medical and allergen reducing interventions, it's important to note that EOE, if left poorly controlled over time, can lead to scarring or so-called fibrotic strictures. When this scarring happens, no amount of medical intervention will correct this. And if there's significant narrowing of the esophagus, then mechanically breaking open that area is needed. And that can be performed during an endoscopy when we pass either a dilator over a wire or inflate a balloon uh, in that area that widens it. And this is quick and effective, but can have a slight risk of a tear of the esophagus or placing a hole in the esophagus. This happens about 1% of the time, so it's about 1 in 100, but it is certainly important consideration for, for a patient to think about. As we have learned, more about this disease state, the treatment has evolved. Importantly, there are no current FDA approved treatments for eosinophilic esophagitis. So any and all discussion of these therapies is considered off-label. To begin though, there is a dietary control of this disease by minimizing allergen exposure. And this would constitute either a four-food or a six-food elimination diet. The four-food elimination diet includes cow's milk, eggs, soy, and wheat whereas the six-food elimination diet adds tree nuts and shellfish to this list. These diets can be quite effective, but most patients do not feel this is a sustainable diet over time and over the long term, since if someone is to choose the dietary management, they would need to eliminate these elements from their diet for their entire life. And as you can see, those categories of foods encompass a lot of what we take in. So it is very challenging to maintain this type of diet, and most do not find this to be a great option for their therapy. For those with the most severe symptoms that are non-responsive to other therapies, a so-called elemental diet is also considered an option, and this is even more challenging and restrictive for patients and is not a very appetizing option. So what about medical therapies? Yes, there are several of these, quote, off-label treatments, and these include proton pump inhibitors and topical or systemic steroids. One theory behind DOE emanates from the concept that some people have too much acid regurgitating into their esophagus from their stomach. In this circumstance, this acid might stimulate this eosinophil inflammation resulting in EOE. Given this, theoretically, if we reduce the acid in the stomach, there would be less in the esophagus and therefore less inflammation overall. Some of the most potent medications we have to reduce acid are those, the so-called proton pump inhibitors or PPIs. These are medications called omeprazole, Esomeprazole, pantoprazole, lansoprazole, and dexlansoprazole. These medications can be effective at treating the inflammation of VOE, and they're usually started as first-line therapy. Topical and systemic steroids are another option. So how does this work? In effect, steroids block inflammation. So by broadly blocking inflammation, you can decrease that inflammation in the esophagus, control the disease, and reduce symptoms. So really, what is the best way to do this? One usually feels that the best way to treat something is to get right to the source of the problem. In this case, that's the esophagus. And the best way to do this currently is by taking a medication that is FDA-indicated actually for asthma. The medication is called fluticasone, and instead of having a patient breathe it into their lungs, we teach them to swallow it into their esophagus and stomach. The results have been impressive, but we are clearly using something designed for another use and adapting it with minimal data to support this. Systemic steroids, such as prednisone, can also be taken from the more severe cases, as this is a system-wide way of decreasing inflammation, and that will target the esophagus as well. These have shown a good ac- accuracy and a- effectiveness, and there have been clinical trials for products that are targeted for EOE in this realm as well. In fact, recently, one study of a swallowed form of budesonide showed really exciting results. As a clinician, it is my hope that these studies will lead to an FDA-approved product to treat EOE instead of the off-label tools that we currently use. It is truly such an exciting time for this space with some products in the pipeline.
1: That's wonderful, Dr. Feuerstadt. Thank you so much for sharing all the treatments that are available and what is coming up and what's being done to treat EOE. Thank you for that. And. Dr. Bullis, at this time, can you provide to our global audience an overview of what chronic idiopathic constipation is?
3: Yes, Nancy, of course. So uh, let me first get started and say, you know, constipation is is one of the most common digestive reasons for seeking medical attention with your healthcare provider. It's estimated to occur in about 15% of the adult population, with up to a third occurring in the elderly. Now, the definition of idiopathic is when we do not know the cause of a disease and and the cause is is, is unknown, and this is referring to the uh, term idiopathic. So with chronic idiopathic constipation, it's constipation due to to an unknown cause after we've taken the time to rule out other potential causes of constipation, we haven't been able to pinpoint an actual cause of why this constipation is occurring. And the chronic component just means that it's been going on for a longer duration of time. Constipation is defined as having less than three bowel movements per week. It's very important to remember that some people have bowel movement several times a day to a few times a week. In general, constipation is used to describe a disturbance in bowel habits. Now, that disturbance may come in the form of hard stools, difficulty in having a bowel movement or passing a bowel movement and a sense of incomplete bowel movement. So you, you feel that you, you did not complete the the process of going to the bathroom and having a full bowel movement. And in some cases, you may also feel the sense of incomplete evacuation of your bowels. So um, while you, you may have had a, a bowel movement, you don't feel that you've completely finished um, at the time of, of you leaving the bathroom. Chronic constipation is usually due to a disorder related to Um, the movement or contraction of your colon and or rectum. Sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, we don't know the underlying cause of constipation. And in some patients, there may be other causes of constipation related to a neurologic disorder, maybe related to an obstruction in the GI tract or a blockage of the gastrointestinal tract, such as colon cancer Um, There are patients that suffer from diabetes, uh, specifically diabetes mellitus, um, that may also have an association with constipation. It's also very important to remember that certain medications may also cause constipation. There are a number of common lifestyle causes of constipation. In folks that don't eat, um, you know, a good amount of fiber in their diet, so eating, low, eating foods low in fiber uh, may help promote constipation. If you're not adequately drinking fluids and water, that may also help uh, promote constipation. Um, low physical activity and exercise has been noted to be a part of the paradigm of, of constipation. And uh, in addition to that, stress, you know, many of, many of people around the world suffer from stress-related um, you know, issues in their life that may help facilitate uh, what they see in terms of bowel movements being constipation. So eating low fibers, inadequate water intake, low physical activity and exercise, and stress in your life uh, may help facilitate um, constipation.
1: Okay, Dr. Bullis, thank you so much for all that information. And Dr. Forostat, we're three minutes from our next commercial break. And would you mind sharing with our audience the greatest who's at greatest risk for developing chronic idiopathic constipation, and what are the most common symptoms with this disease?
2: Nancy, thank you. Um, surprisingly, this question really, the question of who's at greatest risk has not been thoroughly evaluated in the literature, and what we do know is that the studies available have been very variable, but it is estimated that in the United States population, approximately 15% suffers from chronic idiopathic constipation. When one approaches any disease state, we always like to think about so-called risk factors for the disease. And with chronic idiopathic constipation, these include female gender, advanced age, multiracial ethnicity, lower levels of income and education, and patients with low physical activity being at greatest risk.
1: Okay, great. Thanks so much for sharing that information, Doctor. And um, can you explain some of the most common symptoms?
2: Sure. Um, So the most common symptoms of chronic idiopathic constipation is, in clinical terms, uh, when a patient fulfills certain standardized criteria. And that includes symptoms of constipation for three consecutive months with symptoms starting at least Six months prior to establishing a diagnosis. The symptoms must include two or more of the following, straining during more than 25% of bowel movements, lumpy or hard stool during more than 25% of bowel movements, the sensation of incomplete bowel movements during more than 25% of movements, the sensation of blockage or obstruction during one in four bowel movements, and less than three spontaneous movements per week.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstedt. And at this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing isonophilic esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation with our guests, Dr. Paul Feuerstedt and Dr. Mina Boulis. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks. Because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly. You need disinfectants you can trust. To help support the C-Diff Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free one 844 4 c That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us on Saturday, November 14th at 8 a.m. Eastern Time for the 8th Annual International CDF Virtual Conference and Health Expo. For details and to register, please visit cdiff2020.com. Again, that's cdiff2020.com. Or contact the CDF Foundation at 727-205-3922. We look forward to meeting you online on November 14th and meeting you in person in November 2021 in Boston, Massachusetts at the Hilton Boston Logan Airport Hotel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to C. diff spores and more and we thank you for joining us today with doctors Paul Feuerstadt and Dr. Mina Bullis and doctors are here today discussing isonophilic, esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation. Thank you so much again doctors for joining us today and Dr. Feuerstadt I'm going to ask you to help uh, our audience understand a little bit about uh, diagnosing the chronic idiopathic constipation.
2: Sure, Nancy. That's an excellent question, very important question. As a clinician, I always go straight back to history. And I think it's most important to elicit a truly comprehensive history from all of my patients. And this is usually the key to any diagnosis. And and having briefly discussed the criteria for chronic uh, idiopathic constipation above, this disease state is no different. In addition to the physical exam, a rectal exam is essential as well, um, and that's obviously part of the physical exam. And some patients present with constipation, but the musculature in the anal and rectal region is not functioning properly or not coordinated as well as we'd like. And Similar to what we discussed with the esophagus, this too can lead to constipation, in coordinated contractions, that is. Sometimes it's useful to obtain a simple abdominal X-ray, as Dr. Bullis referred to before. And this can show us information about the distribution of the valve in a patient's abdomen. And one simple but very useful test is a SITS marker study. And in that study, patients take a pill that contains 24 plastic, small circular markers that are seen on abdominal X-ray. They're so-called radio-opaque. An abdominal X-ray is taken five days after the patient takes that pill, And if at least five of the markers remain in the patient and are distributed evenly throughout the colon on abdominal x-ray, then it's likely that the patient has so-called low transit constipation. Alternatively, if most of the remaining markers are close to the exit area, close to the rectum and anus, then one would consider a blockage close to the anus or problems with the musculature in that area, so-called dyssynergic defecation. In certain circumstances, a more invasive assessment is needed, and this takes the form of a flexible sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy. These are procedures that are essentially the opposite of an endoscopy. Following the cleansing of the bowel, the patient is sedated and a flexible camera is inserted into, in, inserted either partially through the colon, the flexible sigmoidoscopy, or fully through the colon as in a colonoscopy. Within these tests, within these tests obviously, biopsies can be taken of the lining of the bowel to assess for inflammatory conditions. And one can also assess for mechanical lesions, such as growths or cancers within the colon.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for all that information, Dr. Poirostat. We appreciate it. And Dr. Bullis, would you mind taking a moment to review treatments that are available for chronic idiopathic constipation?
3: (laughs) Sure, Nancy. So, you know, I think uh, Dr. Feuerstad has, has made this point, as well as myself, earlier and throughout the program. Before we get started in talking about treatment, a patient's best source of information, just to reiterate this, about treatment or any management modality that exists, is their doctor or healthcare provider. However, in, you know, getting specific to the treatment of chronic idiopathic constipation, yeah, you know, it's important to start from, from the basic steps. One, that starts with patient education. It starts also with potentially dietary changes. We're talking about a disease that affects the digestive tract. Sometimes dietary changes, depending on the recommendation of your doctor, may be warranted. There are also um, uh, medications that are available in the form of laxatives, whether bulk and non-bulk forming laxatives, Um, enemas exist, and or prescription medications exist. And I'll spend just a couple of minutes here discussing the -the over-the-counter medications that are currently available um, and giving you a brief description about them. And I'll also spend a few minutes uh, discussing the prescription medications that are are available for chronic idiopathic constipation. Now, in in terms of over-the-counter, one of the things that you may hear from your physician is a high-fiber diet. Now, while this is is not necessarily a medication, um, it is available over-the-counter, whether through dietary changes or in terms of supplements that you can pick up. From um, an over-the-counter uh, pharmacy, or, or um, uh, uh, while you're while you're shopping. Now, these supplements and 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 diet um, are sometimes part of the uh, treatment that the physician uh, recommends to increase your high fi- to increase your diet uh, uh, your dietary fibers. Fibers increase the size of stool and soften the stool. A, in general, a bulkier, softer stool is easier to pass, especially in patients with constipation. Now, number two um, in, in the over-the-counter medications that I'll discuss is polyethylene glycol, also referring to it as PEG. This is a medication that causes more water to be retained in the gut and ultimately this, this additional water um, is retained within the stool. This will increase the number of bowel movements that a patient has and soften the stool, making it easier to facilitate uh, a bowel movement. Third um, over-the-counter that I'll discuss is or ursena. These are known and considered to be stimulant laxatives that cause an increase in intestinal movement um, and contraction, so helping the uh, the uh, patient to have more of a contraction and and stimulation of their intestine to help pass the stool. Um, and last but certainly not least, one of the available over the counter uh, options is the Fleet Enema. And many uh, folks that hear the word enema um, are, you know, uh, are already thinking this is rectally administered. It works by increasing the amount of water in your gut. Which soften the stool and aid in producing a bowel movement. So, so these are some of the over the counter uh, medications that are available, but most importantly, um, you should discuss any of these uh, options with your physician um, to get the, the, the best treatment. Now there are a few types of prescription medications that are currently available to uh, patients who suffer from chronic idiopathic constipation. The first that I'll speak about are the prosecretory agents. Um, and when I say the word secretory, this uh, essentially refers to increasing of fluid, so pro-increase uh, of fluid in your bowels. Um, while you have more fluid in your bowel, this may help move stool throughout your bowels uh, a, a bit more easier for those that suffer from chronic idiopathic constipation. Now, there are also other agents known as prokinetic agents, and the word kinetic essentially means movement, so we're pro-movement here. Um, This increases the contraction of our bowel or colon and may increase secretions in the stool, helping in, in the movement of our intestines and improving the movement of food during digestion. And last but certainly not least are the osmotic laxatives, which increase fluid in our bowels. And with that increase of fluid, we get softer stools, um, and that helps increase the, uh, the, the water retention in our bowels to help promote and facilitate an easier bowel movement. So those are some of the types of uh, prescription medications that are currently available. Remember, the, the best source of information about any of these treatments or any treatment in general is your health provider and your physician.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Bullis, for all that information. And Dr. Feuerstadt, we have about two and a half minutes before we close the program. Would you like to provide some key points of this episode for our audience? Sure. Um,
2: You know, eosinophilic esophagitis and chronic idiopathic constipation are uh, very common and they're seen very commonly in clinical practice. Uh, We ran through some of the workup, uh, some of the anatomy of the esophagus and the colon, um, but focusing on the disease state specifically, eosinophilic esophagitis is an inflammatory condition as a result of eosinophils in the esophagus. We are seeing it more and more commonly. Uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, this really wasn't even a recognized disorder, and now we're seeing it fairly commonly in our population. We diagnose it with an endoscopy with a flexible camera down into the esophagus and stomach and biopsy during that time. The treatments are, are variable. They can include a diet, acid suppressive therapy, and steroids. When we think of chronic idiopathic constipation, this is incredibly common and a huge burden on our healthcare system. The workup includes abdominal imaging and or flexible sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy, depending on the clinical circumstance. And as Dr. Bullis just outlined, the treatments are also fairly variable. They can include a high-fiber diet, various over-the-counter laxatives um, or supplements, as well as a number of oral medications that work through different mechanisms to promote bowel movement through release of fluid or through promoting propulsion forward. So these are really fascinating diseases, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss them with you today, Nancy.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt. And at this time, we are out of time for this program of C. diff, spores, and more. And we would like to thank both Dr. Paul Feuerstadt for joining us and Dr. Mina Bullis. We appreciate your dedication in the healthcare community. And at this time, we wish you um, a good health, uh, good healing from all the diseases out there, and a good day. Thank you for joining us today.